five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, we have a future in space operations presentation by Mike Gold with an update on the Artemis Accords and some insights into the future of space resources. Most people interested in commercial space and the development of space resources should be familiar with Mike Gold. Gold became a special advisor in late 2019 to then NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein. And just over a month ago, he was named as a NASA Associate Administrator for Space Policy and Partnerships. As Associate Administrator for Space Policy and Partnerships, Gold is responsible for formulating and leading a comprehensive strategy to integrate domestic, international, intergovernmental, and industry policy across the space domain, including priorities that enhance the resiliency and capabilities of the Artemis program. Prior to joining NASA, Gold was Vice President for Civil Space at Maxar Technologies. Before the formation of Maxar, Gold was the Vice President of Washington Operations for Space Systems Laurel. Prior to that, Gold spent 12 years as Corporate Counsel as well as Director of Washington Operations and Business Growth for Bigelow Aerospace. Gold was also the first chair of the NASA Advisory Council's Regulatory and Policy Committee and also chaired the FAA's Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee for nearly seven years. Listen in. Uh, Mike, the floor is yours. Hey, thanks, Harley, and it's good to hear uh, so many, and I'll say it since I'm old, but so many old friends uh, on the line. Appreciate everyone taking the time. And what I was asked to do today was to provide an update on the Artemis Accords and talk a little bit about the lay of the land relative to space resources policy. But I can't give an update on the Artemis Accords without taking a little bit of time to describe the Accords themselves and There may be some new members who didn't hear me go through what the Accords are previously, so with everyone's forbearance, I'd like to give a description of the Accords, then get into the update, and then we'll talk about space resources policy. For those of you, and I expect there are a few on the phone that have heard me give this presentation a time or two, just sing along. It's Artemis Accords karaoke today. So... Uh, with that, and then when I'm finished, have me take any questions and have a discussion. And if I know this group, there will be many questions. So if everyone could turn to the first page, slide one uh, of the Artemis Accords, again, very briefly, we have any number of international obligations, the Outer Space Treaty, the Registration Convention, the Agreement on the Rescue of Astronauts, as well as norms of behavior that we have traditionally practiced at NASA, such as the full, free, and open, and public release of scientific data. And uh, the Outer Space Treaty, fantastic document, over 50 years old, doesn't look a day over 35, and it's lasted so long because it's a treaty of principles, and that's a strategy we actually took from the Outer Space Treaty for the Accords. We're discovering so much on the Moon and Mars, so much we didn't know that You don't want to be too prescriptive when it comes to your operations and regulations because we're going to learn a lot. So we wanted to keep 
uh, the accords and the principles at a relatively high level to be able to accommodate all of the amazing new discoveries that we will occur and that we'll learn on the moon, hence uh, the accords being principles as well. And what the accords are fundamentally is implementing our obligations under the Outer Space Treaty, the Registration Convention, get other international agreements that, unfortunately, I can't just take the Outer Space Treaty and throw it at Kathy Leaders and say, here, do this. She would definitely punch me. And what the Accords are, again, is implementing those obligations and ensuring that not only NASA, but our international partners abide by all of the international obligations as we implement the outer space, the Artemis program. So, you know, really we're operationalizing in many ways the Outer Space Treaty Registration Convention and again other agreements that I will talk more about. So, Let's discuss what are the principles of the Outer Space Treaty, and if everyone could go to slide two, peaceful purposes. Uh, Just like the Outer Space Treaty and its focus on peaceful activities, the Accords follow suit, and the very first requirement is that all activities under the Artemis program will be for peaceful purposes. And maybe just to take a moment to describe the structure of the Accords, the principles of the Accords are what we're asking all countries to sign on to. The text is identical for every country that agrees. And for nations that want to participate in the Artemis program, you know, these are the principles that we're asking them to commit to. Beyond that, there would be the actual contributions to the Artemis program that would be done via a separate agreement that, of course, would be different for every country that, for example, Italy might want to contribute to surface habitat or United Arab Emirates, a power station. So the contributions and liability and the structure for each contribution would be different, but the principles would be the same for everyone. And one of, if not the most important principle, is that all activities under Artemis need to be conducted for peaceful purposes. And let's go to slide three. Only a little bit behind that in terms of importance is transparency. That transparency is the spine of the Artemis Accords. So much conflict here on Earth is caused by lack of communication, misperception, confusion. And the most powerful tool that we have is transparency to prevent conflict and make sure that at the very least we're all talking to each other and understand what's occurring. So uh, a very important principle of the Accords is transparency, and we're asking all Artemis Accords partner nations to describe publicly their policies and plans. And again, you will see the value of transparency repeated in several of the Artemis Accords principles. Uh, next slide, which would be number four, interoperability. This isn't in the Outer Space Treaty, at least explicitly, but we think it's very much in the spirit of the treaty. It's not only important for people to be able to talk to each other, but for spacecraft and hardware and spaceships to be able to communicate. International cooperation will be bolstered the more interoperable that systems are. And it will also create an environment that's conducive to private sector growth and development as we have more interoperability. Uh, obviously, you never want to take anything to an extreme. We are aware that if you force interoperability, it can have some negative impacts on innovation. So 
let's just say it's aspirational, that where we can, we want to strive to be interoperable as much as possible. And there are several groups, DARPA confers, et cetera, that are working on compatibility standards, interoperability, et cetera. I think many of the people on our call, or at least some of them, are involved in those efforts. Going to the next slide, slide five, uh, emergency assistance. So as the slide states, we think it's the cornerstone of any responsible civil space program to render assistance to any astronaut in need, and therefore, we're asking Artemis Accord partners to reaffirm their commitment to the agreement on the rescue of astronauts. And this is a good example of synergy between the principles of the Accords, where the more interoperable systems are, the more effective, the more safe, and the more expeditious rendering emergency assistance will be. Going on to the next slide, uh, slide number six, registration of space objects. Registration is fundamental to safe operations in space. It's fundamental to the Outer Space Treaty and fundamental to the Artemis Accords. If you don't have registration and you don't do that well, then everything that comes after that, whether it's liability or deconfliction of activities, you can't conduct responsible civil space activities without the foundation that is proper registration, which is why we're asking Artemis Accords countries to reinforce their commitment to the registration convention. And for any nation that's participating in Artemis, they need to sign up to the registration convention if they aren't a member already. Going on to the next slide, slide seven, release of scientific data. It's important that we take not just NASA, but the whole world with us on the Artemis journey. And by publicly releasing scientific data in a full and timely fashion, anyone, anywhere with an internet connection will be able to enjoy and participate in the awe-inspiring discoveries, the amazing science that Artemis will deliver. And that's why we think it's so important for NASA and any partners in the Artemis program to publicly release their scientific data, again, in a full, timely, and open fashion. Going on to slide eight, this is just a bit of common sense that just like here on Earth where we honor our heritage and our history with museums where we keep historic artifacts or historic sites, we also need to honor heritage on the moon, on Mars, and elsewhere, which is why an important principle of the Artemis Accords is to protect heritage. And we're asking any country that joins us to not create any harmful interference or damage to historic sites. On this slide, you see that this is a human spaceflight site, but this is just as true for robotic systems, that if a country has its first rover or lander on the moon, that could also have great historic significance. So I just want to underline the fact that uh, protecting heritage and historic sites works for both human spaceflight as well as robotics. Going on to space resources, this is now slide nine. Without the ability to live off the land, no journey of discovery is going to be successful. It's true here on Earth, and it's true as we go to space. Uh, imagine for those of you who go camping, if you had to bring all of your air with you, all of your water with you. Uh, I know I wouldn't be very successful on that camping trip. And again, that's even more true on the moon and then even more true again 
on Mars. So space resources in many ways are the fuel that will allow humanity to establish a permanent presence on the moon and go on to Mars. And when it comes to space resources, there's a lot of diverse views in the international community relative uh, to this topic. And that's why the Artemis Accords, we wanted to find common ground. Uh, we have, for example, a country in the form of Australia that's a member of the Moon Agreement. We have other countries that aren't. So we wanted to say, what is it that we can all agree to? And that's what's in the Artemis Accords, which is that you can extract, you can utilize resources, and that all such activities should be conducted in full compliance with the Outer Space Treaty. Moving on to uh, slide 10, deconfliction of activities. This is a great example of implementing the obligations of the Outer Space Treaty, that the Outer Space Treaty prohibits harmful interference and the accords transform that requirement into reality via the use of safety zones. And this is a concept that was developed at the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group at first, although it's been kicking around for a while. And simply put, and let me maybe give you an example of what a safety zone is, and as you see on the slide, if you had a rover and the rover could go 20 kilometers and then if there was an off-nominal event, you might have debris spread another 10, that area of 30 kilometers where the rover could cause harmful interference with another operation is the area where the safety zone would exist. And the safety zone creates two responsibilities. One, that the country operating in the safety zone must notify the United Nations publicly relative to where they are and at least generally what they're doing. And two, an obligation to coordinate with any entity that enters that area to avoid harmful interference as required by the Outer Space Treaty. I want to be very clear what a safety zone isn't. It isn't an exclusionary zone. It isn't in any way prohibiting anyone from entering an area. As a matter of fact, per the second requirement, it actually proactively contemplates other countries, other companies or entities entering that similar area, hence the call for coordination, uh, because as required by the Outer Space Treaty, you have to have uh, free use and exploration of the entire celestial body on the moon. So the safety zone, as the name indicates, is just an area where there are responsibilities for notification to the United Nations and publicly and coordination to avoid that harmful interference. The final principle of the Artemis Accords is orbital debris and spacecraft disposal. I really hope that we can do better in space than we have here on Earth in many ways. And one of those areas where there's room for improvement is orbital debris, that obviously that is a significant issue for us right now. And we need to do better as we go to space, which is why for countries participating in Artemis, we're asking them to at least have a plan for the mitigation of orbital debris and the safe, timely, and efficient passivation and disposal of the spacecraft at the end of their missions. If you can go now to slide 12, uh, we were really glad and thrilled and excited on October 13th to be joined by seven other countries in executing the accords. It was a terrific mix of both traditional partners that you see here, such as Canada, 
and Japan, uh, as well as new entrants like United Arab Emirates and Australia and Luxembourg. And while we certainly greatly appreciate our partnership with uh, the traditional space nations, I can tell you that countries like United Arab Emirates have inserted such wonderful new energy and, and thought and perspectives. And we're really looking forward to working again, yes, with our traditional partners in Europe and, and Asia and elsewhere. But these new entrants, I think, are going to transform the space industry and the space world. And again, we were really glad to get a good mix of those nations with the initial signatories to the Artemis Accords. Now, I'd also like to give you a little bit of background in terms of why uh, those countries were the first to sign. And uh, obviously, we've got limited time and resources at NASA, so we'd welcome anyone uh, to sign the Artemis Accords and to commit to those principles for a peaceful and safe and prosperous future. But in particular, for nations that are already part of the Artemis program or had expressed a strong interest for activities on the moon, et cetera. There, it was particularly important to work with them quickly to ensure, again, that all Artemis operations, whether it's with us or our partners, abide by the obligations of the Outer Space Treaty, the Registration Convention, and all other international agreements, again, along with some norms of behavior, such as the public release of scientific data. Since October, when the initial eight nations, including the U.S., signed the Artemis Accords, Ukraine uh, joined as well, bringing the total up to nine. As new countries join the Artemis program, there will be new additions to the Artemis Accords. So look out for uh, more entrants as we look towards the months and uh, years ahead. Uh, I would say that uh, Brazil uh, just recently also executed a joint statement of intent with NASA, uh, declaring their intention to join the Artemis program and the Accords as well. So that's a quick rundown of the Accords and an update in terms of, at least from when I last briefed the FISO over the summer as to where we're at. I was also asked to talk a little bit about space resources policy. Uh, and so you, Mike, Mike, this is yep. Arlene. This is a great, uh, if you don't mind, I think this is a great point to ask a couple of questions, although I don't want to take anything away from space resources. Um, so I think this was, and thank you again, I think I'm asking the same question, although the answer may have evolved that I asked in the first presentation. Well, first of all, you're consistent, Harley. You <laughs> that's a, I'm not very creative, but I do try to be consistent. The um, So I think it's it may, the, the question may be the same question, just worded different ways, but whatever. First of all, um, who, quote, unquote, owns the Artemis Accords? Um, who has overall responsibility for the accords? And I guess that's 1A and 1B may be uh, more specificity about that. Um, how are the inevitable um, conflicts, disagreements, and, and so on adjudicated? Mm -hmm. So uh, relative to the first part of your program, of your uh, question, all of the countries that sign the accords own the accords. And I can tell you the development of the text, the negotiation that took place. You know, if you think negotiating with seven other space agencies is difficult, now try to do it with their ministries of foreign affairs on the phone at the same time. 
uh, it was an extraordinary discussion and a real privilege and honor to be a part of that with such a diverse array of countries and cultures. And again, watching how all of the countries came together to craft the text, to improve this text, the accords are really owned by all of us that, you know, while we took a first pass at this document and sent it out, it evolved substantially due to the excellent feedback of the international community and countries that uh, provided the input and helped craft uh, that initial draft into a really terrific document. And it's just amazing as you, you know, go through a document as much as we had even to gain the internal approval. And then you see the things you didn't think of or that you missed that, you know, Japan or Emirates, uh, you know, would get to. Um, I'm also convinced that the Japanese speak better English than we do. Uh, just their comments on typos, et cetera, uh, were amazing. Um, so the accords belong to everyone, and now they really, in a way, belong to the world, that any country uh, can sign on to the accords and can agree to commit to the principles of the accords, and we hope that everyone does. Um, relative to conflict, uh, again, just like the Outer Space Treaty, in the end, it all comes down to talking to each other, and I would say, really, that's how all conflict is eventually uh, resolved. So just like the Outer Space Treaty, it is consultation with each other to ensure that uh, we avoid conflict. And let me say relative to the accords that that is, you know, I've said a couple of times, a fundamental purpose, but that is what we were trying to achieve with the accords to avoid conflict, to prevent that conflict before it occurs. I know it's a cliche, but an ounce of prevention can prevent a pound of trouble down the road. And that's what the Accords have been and we're all about, that the more transparent we are, that the more we try and respect the Registration Convention, the Outer Space Treaty, the less likely there is to be conflict. And as many of you know, I'm a big science fiction fan in my personal life, and I've always said that the Accords are a gateway to make sure that the future is more Star Trek and less Star Wars. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. And by putting these principles out, you know, they now not only belong equally to the international partners as much as they do ourselves, but to the world. And I hope that there's a global commitment to these principles, the vast majority of which are all, again, grounded in the Outer Space Treaty, other international agreements, uh, or in just norms of behavior that we and our partners traditionally practice. Good. Thank you. Actually, a quick, a quickish follow-up question, sort of one another process question. Um, the two process questions. Uh, one is when their time comes. Although, um, at the, of course, if Italy is a member of ESA and EU, and Canada kind of is a member of ESA, um, are you looking to see ESA or the EU sign as a block? Um, and I see to their benefit. Japan has two seats at the table on slide 12. <laughs> How did that work out? <laughs> so uh, Japan liked it so much. It was so nice they signed it twice, as they say. Um, what you often have happened there, Harley, as I was referencing to the negotiations that the accords were developed, not just by the space agencies, but ministries of foreign affairs. 
And that's why you see two Japanese representatives in that image, because there were two parts of Japanese government that were responsible for helping the Accords. And we wanted to honor and express our appreciation to both uh, by having them both sign. Um, and now I've already forgotten what was the other part of your uh, question, Harley? Yeah, it, it will be, although, as I said, um, Italy is a member of ESA and the EU, yeah, and EU, Canada yeah. is, you know, kind of. So how, who yeah. will represent Europe, or will they come in, in as individual countries? Yes. So when it comes to this kind of commitment, uh, I would say uh, the question I often get is not so much uh, related to EU, but to ESA, the European Space Agency. And the reason that it's individual countries instead of ESA is that ESA as an entity usually cannot commit uh, to these sorts of principles or, or broad documents that each member state needs to do so, uh, just like we saw with the IGA, the Intergovernmental Agreement that governs the International Space Station, that each member state has to ratify. So it's challenging for ESA as an entity uh, to conduct this sort of activity. It belongs more to the nation states for the uh, individual ministries of foreign affairs that get involved. Um, yeah, it all depends on operations. So, you know, we'll see if there's sort of a, a combined European effort of some sort that's operating on the moon where you'd want a commitment on these principles. Uh, it's certainly possible, but I think for the near future anyway, you're looking at working with individual countries, uh, unless until there's a larger ESA uh, or EU effort. We certainly have briefed ESA uh, on the accords to just make sure they understand where we're headed and what we're trying to do, and we will remain in communication uh, with ESA as we move forward with this and other policy initiatives. Okay, good, great. Hi, Mike. Let's keep the other questions. Please say yeah, Ron Picker. I uh, had a question relative to um, the relationship between the Artemis Accords uh, and the ISS uh, IDA, and uh, if you could also comment on what is the future of the IDA in the uh, post-ISS uh, world. Yeah, great question. Um, and, you know, with the Accords, they're very high level, more grounded in the Outer Space Treaty, but while you're asking about the future of the IGA, I can tell you it will be orbiting the moon, that the IGA did a terrific job of laying out responsibilities, boards, processes for operating the International Space Station. And whether you're operating a space station in low Earth orbit or an orbital outpost around the moon, that same structure for governing and establishing a multinational space platform is very similar, if not nearly identical. And when we were negotiating the gateway agreements, which is a series of MOUs with the government of Japan, the government of Canada, and the European Space Agency, we actually leveraged the IGA, we tailored the IGA to support those gateway agreements. So the IGA lives on not so much in the Artemis Accords, which are, again, broad principles based on the Outer Space Treaty, but it does live on in the gateway MOUs, which are specific and discrete operational instructions for how we will 
conduct activities and establish our space platform, the orbital outpost gateway around the moon. And let me say too, you know, having gone through uh, these negotiations, you know, we really owe a great debt to the people who, you know, and, and professionals who came before me in negotiating that IGA. Uh, you know, we've had the benefit, whether it's the cords yeah. or the gateway MOUs, to leverage that foundation. I can't imagine what it was like to do that just from a clean slate. And I think we all take the ISS and everything that it stands for for granted too much and too easily. So, you know, I don't think they're on the call, but, you know, kudos to all of NASA and Department of State officials who made the IGA and transform the dream of the ISS and international cooperation into reality that we far too often take for granted these days. Just a question. The U.S. Space Force has obviously expressed interest in the moon and as a strategic objective. I'm just curious about what kind of negotiations and discussions are going on between the U.S. Space Force and NASA. Sorry, this is Jim Headed Brown. Yeah, so there was an MOU executed with Space Force uh, a couple of months ago, a month or two ago. And, you know, the relationship with Space Force is uh, pretty much the same as it was with Space Command and, and the Air Force before. There's a long history of the two agencies working together on issues such as planetary defense uh, and other uh, activities. Um, you know, I, I can say, too, as, as we talk about Space Force, and, and I'd also like to, before we move off the Artemis Accords, maybe say a word about commercial as well, that the Artemis Accords establish norms of behavior for civil space activities. But as you bring up Space Force, there's a great deal of work that needs to be done relative to norms of behavior from a national security perspective. And, and I certainly hope that the world will get together on that, and to the extent you can ensconce some global understanding of norms of behavior in the national security context, again, it could be a great tool to help ensure peace and transparency and communication between nations. And then on the commercial side, while you'll see in the Accords some principles that benefit the private sector relative to uh, just establishing how uh, you can interpret uh, the Outer Space Treaty or how you operationalize the Outer Space Treaty interoperability. As I mentioned, I think it's a good thing for the private sector. We'll help them establish an environment that's conducive uh, to growth and also you know, just reassuring private sector relative to space resources, et cetera. Those are all good things. But there are some principles in the accords that you wouldn't want to translate whole cloth to the private sector, such as the uh, requirement to fully release uh, all scientific data. That's something that you wouldn't necessarily enforce on a private sector entity if they were operating on a purely commercial basis. And here with the commercial sector, you could see policy work that would need to be done to synchronize the regulations and ensure that they're compatible on a global basis or as much as possible uh, to create a compatible environment for all regulations for commercial space activities. So, and you've got three buckets with civil space, which the Artemis Accords established. Uh, then you've got national security and commercial. So there's much more work to be done.
this is Steve Brody, just another top-level quickie, and that is, what is the domain of applicability? Now, I know you've said civil space activities, and activities to some is a broader definition than exploration, and I wonder about the adjectives human, lunar, beyond, LEO, are any of those applicable to what you have in this accord, in these accords? Yeah. A great question, and just to be clear, the Accords do not address Earth orbit. Uh, if you look at the title of the Accords, they're actually for the Moon, Mars, asteroids, and comets. So I would say everything from Earth orbit, beyond Earth orbit, to Mars, that is the geography that the Accords cover for civil space activities. And is it simply hum, um, is it human and and other? Yes, yeah, human and robotic. There's no uh, distinguishing between the two. They're both applicable uh, to the accords. For example, if someone were to create harmful interference with another nation, uh, that would be prohibited, whether it was with a robotic system or whether it was humans involved. Thank you. Um, other other questions, and then then um, might continue on. You've got some other presentations and points. Another presentation. We're going to talk about space resource, resources and so on. So, uh, hi, this is Ilya Rustovsky. I just had a really quick question. So, um, just to confirm with you, are companies allowed to sign on to the accords, or would it only be through their respective countries' agencies or departments of you know affairs or, or whatnot? Yeah. So, you know, we always welcome anyone committing to the principles of the accords that, again, are based on the Outer Space Treaty. So companies are bound by most of them anyway. And you know, we always appreciate that kind of commitment. But the accords are government to government agreements. And again, don't necessarily translate entirely for commercial operations. So, you know, for example, we wouldn't expect a company again to share their scientific data or information publicly if it was funded all by private operations. So there's a few things in the accords that I wouldn't anticipate a private sector company signing on to because it was more based on taxpayer-funded activities. But there's certainly a lot there that we hope uh, that the private sector would and you know, actually have to commit to because this is all based in the Outer Space Treaty, you know, such as you know, respecting space heritage, registration of space objects, deconfliction of activities, et cetera. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. Good question. Okay. All right, Mike, continue. Great. So uh, I am continuing by circling back around to where we began, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. And for any conversation about space resources, this is where you really begin. And just wanted to make a, a couple of points as to what's in the Outer Space Treaty on that topic, that Article 1 states that utilization of space is open to all countries. Again, it's an example of why you could never do an exclusionary zone or a stay-out zone of any sort, that the Outer Space Treaty, the Article 1, guarantees that free utilization and access. Uh, Article 2, which is probably the most relevant of the provisions of the Outer Space Treaty, states that outer space is not subject to national appropriation. 
So simply put, you cannot take the flag of Spain, and I don't know why I'm picking on Spain in this case, and planting it and declaring the moon or any portion thereof or any other celestial body as part of your nation, because that would be national appropriation. And another article that's very relevant is that Article 6 places responsibility on nations for the authorization and continuing supervision of the activities conducted by its private sector entities. So ultimately in space, the government is responsible for what occurs, and that's why you have Article 6 placing that burden on nations to authorize and continually supervise private sector activities. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Outer Space Treaty, uh, it's in many ways I describe it as the U.S. Constitution of Space Law. It's the backbone that is widely accepted. Uh, almost every country in the world is signed on to it. Certainly every country that is conducting space activities is, so again, a very widely accepted and respected document. Going on to the next slide, that was uh, 13, and now we're on to 14. I'm showing my age with a schoolhouse rock picture on this one, but I think it's important to point out as we look at the policy issues for space resources, what we've done domestically with the U.S. Space Resource Exploration and Utilization Act that was passed in 2015. The idea there was to provide legal certainty to U.S. firms that, again, may invest as well as insurers and others that need that kind of certainty, and it permits space resource utilization only in a manner that's consistent with international obligations. So I greatly appreciate the way that that legislation was crafted to explicitly acknowledge international obligations and to respect them while promoting the right of commercial recovery of space resources free from harmful interference, which, again, is a reference to the Outer Space Treaty. Going on to the final slide, slide 15, you know, while uh, the UN does a tremendous job at a very difficult task when it comes to space, the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and Simonetta de Pippo at the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, again, they just do yeoman's work under very difficult circumstances. I mean, I was just saying how hard it was negotiating with eight countries and eight foreign ministries. Now imagine the UN's work where they get to do that with the entire world. Uh, so we certainly uh, are remaining engaged in a robust fashion with them. But just as you look out towards the future, commercial space obviously is playing a much larger role than anyone would have anticipated back in the 1960s when the Outer Space Treaty was executed. And part of the problem we have with institutions domestically and internationally, is how do you integrate those private sector players into a paradigm that wasn't even imagining the world that we're living in today? And that's where the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, I think, was uh, perhaps a vision of the future, that it was a NGO uh, run out of a university, um, actually from the Netherlands, University of Leiden, although we met consistently in Luxembourg, where you could have the private sector, government entities, academics, scientists, all together in one group, 
sitting side by side. And over the course of several years, the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, and that name just rolls off the tongue, uh, came together to address the space resource governance issue. And again, it was unique uh, to be able to have the private sector at the table in discussing these policy issues. But by the way, the U.S. Department of State does a great job of trying to involve uh, the private sector in COPUS events. Even when I was in the private sector, I think I almost attended at least one COPUS session uh, per year. But again, you can't be at the table per se as a private sector entity, and that's something that you could do at The Hague. And then when The Hague came up with its building blocks, uh, they went and briefed those to the United Nations. So it was a great way of developing almost like a subcommittee that involved the private sector and then briefing up to the UN COPUS Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Entity. As a matter of fact, uh, portions of the Artemis Accords owe, are owed to uh, the and taken from the great work at The Hague uh, safety zones, for example, as I mentioned before, there was a lot of discussion of safety zones, and uh, we owe that heritage to the work in The Hague that found their way into the accord. So, again, that might be a, a model for the future as we look ahead. And then, uh, you know, you all may be familiar with uh, the Lunar Space Resources Purchase that NASA conducted uh, last December. Uh, again, you know, stating that we want partnerships and the power of public and private partnerships as we look towards space resources. And I think space resources are a great example of an activity that unites and represents the Moon-Mars paradigm that we need to learn how to extract resources and use them on Moon. It's important for lunar operations, but even more critical for the more challenging activities as we go to Mars. So great cross energy there. I expect is hopefully the United Nations gets uh, meetings going again. We didn't meet last year. There was no legal subcommittee meeting. And if there was, there would have been a robust discussion of space resources. Uh, hopefully the UN uh, COPUS will be able to meet this year. And I think it'll be delayed somewhat and will likely be a mix of virtual and in-person, but would be terrific for COPUS to be able to get back together again to discuss the important issue of space resources. And we'll see how that goes this year. So with that, I'll take a pause and a breath and look forward to any questions you all might have. Okay. Thank you, Mike, as always. Do folks have, have questions for, for Mike? In addition to what you what you what you may have asked before, yeah, go ahead. This is Steve Brody again. Um, thanks for that, Mike. Very uh, very good overview. Uh, I love <laughs> that second bullet on that final slide. Building blocks for groundwork for potential framework. Uh, it is definitely tiptoeing into a challenging area, as I can imagine. Um, the caution is palpable. <laughs> Trying to keep everyone together. So what's, what strikes me is, or at least prompts this question is, you know, much of, uh, the, the great success in the last decade or so and resilience of, uh, both the U.S. program and, and the commercial sector, so to speak, at least in this country, 
is through the public-private partnerships and collaborations, uh, thinking commercial cargo, commercial crew for ISS, the CLIPS program, et cetera. Um, what, what are your biggest challenges uh, recognizing that a lot of what I expect NASA will be doing is uh, building on the success of these public-private partnerships? How does that present uh, any specific challenges going into this area of space resources from your perspective? Um, <laughs> forgive me, I don't see challenges, just opportunities. Um, I, I really think that the more public-private partnerships and the more robust the commercial capabilities are, uh, the better off that we will be. Uh, as you noted, you know, NASA has benefited greatly from the public-private partnership paradigm, and I dare you to say that three times quickly. But not only cargo, you know, now crew. And I'd also note that we're leveraging public-private partnerships for the gateway logistics services, uh, for HLS, human landing system, and many other activities and areas and in aeronautics, which we don't spend nearly enough time talking about. And now after NASA's, you know, blazed trail, we see Department of Defense and other entities within the U.S. government, both leveraging public-private partnerships more, as well as even mechanics of such procurements via what's called OTA, other transactional authorities. But I will skip the procurement dialogue because I want you all to be able to stay awake for the rest of the afternoon. Um, when it comes to uh, the commercial entities and the policies, though, again, you make a good point that we need to be careful that everyone is following their obligations underneath the Outer Space Treaty. And I think that there have been concerns and questions in the commercial sector. Well, what does that mean? How does the Outer Space Treaty operationalize? And again, while the accords aren't directed at the private sector, I think they do help provide an example for the private sector of what operationalizing the Outer Space Treaty looks like. I, this is uh, Jim Head again. Uh, really excellent. Uh, presentation on on both fronts really appreciated. I just had a question: if uh, if China wanted to uh, join the Artemis Accords, do you see anything uh, keeping them from being able to do that? Uh, again, you know, we will be uh, going to the United Nations and talking about these principles and the principles of the Accords. China's obviously a member of the Outer Space Treaty, and uh, you know, we hope that all nations. Uh, honor these principles and, you know, candidly for anyone who signed the Outer Space Treaty, the vast majority of the Artemis Accords are already part of that. Good answer. <laughs> hey, Mike, uh, this is Marshall Hawley with iSpace US. Um, and as, as you, as you probably, uh, as you definitely know, we won the two of the sports solicitations for lunar resources. I was kind of curious, what do you think is the next frontier for, for this norm development? Um, like, do you anticipate future solicitations or perhaps the purchasing of, of refined resources? Um, so it's like, what's next? Yeah, so on the procurement end, uh, you know, I and obviously we're in transition here, so we'll see uh, where the new administration heads. You know, lots of uh, exciting things happening. It was good to get some terrific people uh, on the political side uh, into NASA. You know, I think many of you are probably familiar with Bahav Yalal and 
you know, she not only noted these issues, but if she didn't write the book, she at least wrote the report uh, on it while over at Stippy. So we've got leadership uh, that understands this inherently uh, already in and coming in. So I think moving ahead, again, we'll see uh, relative to the Artemis program and uh, what it looks like for purchasing uh, any kind of refined material. A lot of that is up to see what the private sector is able to do that, you know, we hope that whether it's data uh, or resources, that there will be private sector developments that we can take advantage of to create more efficiencies to save the taxpayer dollars. Uh, as a Red Sox fan, forgive me for quoting a Yankee, but it's tough to make predictions, particularly about the future, and we're just going to have to see where the private sector capabilities uh, take us. But the government, as always, will be there to act as a catalyst uh, for these capabilities and a customer for what comes. On the policy side, um, as I described, there's really three areas, and the Artemis Accords address civil space, but again, there's work to be done relative to national security norms of behavior, and then synchronizing commercial regulations throughout the world. So I think that's the direction that we're headed, but again, uh, I'm sure whatever I'm predicting now, we're going to be surprised by Thanks, Mike. Yeah, this is Al Tadros at Redwire. I have a question for you, Mike. If, um, it, it better be Red Sox related, Al. Well, uh, although I know you're a baseball fan, I, I hope you don't mind a softball uh, question here. Uh, just, just in the context of so much advancement in, in commercial uh, spaceflight, um, everything from uh, you know private astronauts to uh, clips landers, um, even the burgeoning you know commercial tug tugging services, the commercial um, you know, complex uh, uh, RPO-capable uh, satellites, uh, university-owned and private-owned small sets uh, and cube sets and so forth. Can you just talk briefly about, the, you know, over the last 10 years and then across the next 10 years, how you see regulation uh, kind of adv- advancing and policy advancing at, at a high level um, uh, to keep up with uh, everything that's going on? It's a great question, Al, and let me apologize because you have opened the door for the Article 6 conversation. Um, as we look at this from a higher level, as you describe, we were in a world where you'd have one launch and one satellite. Now, uh, if you look at the recent SpaceX launch, the transporter launch, you have one launch and 140 satellites. We've got small sat development, CubeSat development, Constellation satellites. The orbital environment is becoming far more congested. And even as we look towards activities on the moon, we have to be very careful to ensure that policy keeps pace with technology. We don't want policy to fall behind and then become a drag on innovation. We also don't want policy to fall behind, leading to, for example, a conjunction in orbit that could ruin the orbital environment for all of us or some sort of similar accident elsewhere in cislunar space or beyond. So it's going to be a constant struggle to do that. 
And that is to say nothing of the private sector. And, and as you're saying, your question with CLIPS and other activities, those may not be fully and, and a lot won't be uh, even in part a government activity. And we need to make sure that the regulations are in place both to hopefully act as a catalyst for more innovation and better capabilities that will improve uh, humanity's health and life and scientific knowledge, uh, and at the same time keep the peace and honor our international obligations. And that's an existential challenge because we haven't had to do that before. We haven't been in an era where space has commercial companies as a significant player and potentially in the future even the dominant player. And that's why we need to take action now to look at these issues. And I reference Article 6 for those of you who are fortunate enough not to be familiar with Article 6 and the Outer Space Treaty as a whole. Uh, as we mentioned during the presentation, that's where there's a requirement for government to authorize and provide continuing supervision of private sector activities. And again, we need to make sure that U.S. policy is developed to be able to tackle those issues and future issues in an efficient and effective problem, in an efficient and effective way. And again, that the institutions themselves take account of the reality on the ground where we have the private sector as a significant partner. So those are just a few of the challenges that we're going to face at a high level, and let me just assure you that no attorneys will be going bankrupt anytime soon in the space law world. The, uh, the, the big money-spinning opportunities for attorneys in space law. Uh, <laughs> very good. Okay, again, if um, we're after our nominal quitting time, but, but we um, own this, thanks to Dan, we own this line. Uh, any other, uh, however, any other closing quick questions uh, for Mike? Well, Steve Brody right. will have a quick follow-up, and that is, um, to the extent you're able to, uh, you're you're able to express it, Mike. Uh, uh, is there any likelihood that, uh, uh, or any active engagement with uh, nation states on two of the continents that are not currently represented, namely? Africa and South America, so we can bring them into the fold? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's an excellent point that, you know, we need uh, diversity of nations, diversity of peoples. That's where innovation comes from, both here at home and abroad. And as I mentioned before, the initial countries that we had to prioritize with the Accords were those that we were already engaged with in Artemis or those that already expressed an interest. Uh, but we absolutely need to expand out to Africa, to South America. We were thrilled that while Brazil hadn't signed yet, that they moved forward with a joint statement of intent uh, to join the Artemis program, to execute the Accords. That's something that both Japan and Italy had done prior to signing. And uh, while I can't go into the details, I can assure you that we're looking at partnerships in Africa, and there's a lot of countries that are actually doing some terrific things that uh, we could take advantage of. And that's the beauty of the Artemis program, which 
will be the largest, broadest, and most diverse human spaceflight coalition in history. And we need to take advantage of that diversity. And I can assure you we're having conversations on every continent uh, and we'll be leading the world towards a bold future that involves all of us. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. If the podcast service or app you use offers the opportunity to rate this podcast, we would please ask that you do so. Your review will help others discover our podcast. Thank you.